welcome to episode three, season three of our podcast, Something to Eat and Something to Read, all about reading and cooking and food and the role that it plays in the books that we love or we love to chat about. Today, I am talking with my co-host, as always, Jermaine Lees, bibliotherapist, psychotherapist, and my name is Sophie Hansen. I'm a food writer and I'm talking to you from our farm just outside of Orange, where it's finally rained after a long, dry, well, not so long, a bit of a dry uh, end of summer. How are you, Jermaine? How, what's happening with you? Hi, Sophie. I um, was just thinking about the rain is due here. It's very dark and drab in Sydney. But it's quite welcome after the heat wave we had here on the weekend. So I'm looking forward yeah. to cooler temperatures. I'm looking forward to autumn. I know, me too. But it's so funny because like right up until Christmas we had floods in this part of the world and it was too much rain and then instantly mm-hmm. it was dry. And now it's – anyway, this is not a podcast about the weather but um, it's really nice to see the change <laughs> of seasons. And today we are talking about a rather spicy book. And, in fact, I'm sitting here with a cup of tea just finished eating a hot cross bun. I feel like I'm potentially not the demographic for this book, Milk Fed, but I found it fascinating nonetheless. <laughs> I'm not feeling well, particularly. Well, it's a change of season, isn't it? It's, yeah, that's true. It is a bit like the weather. <laughs> no, I'm really, I cannot wait to hear your thoughts about this book. So do you want to share a bit of a synopsis with us? Let's, I'm going to read out the publisher's synopsis because uh, it's quite thorough and explains it well, I think. This book's about Rachel, who's 24. She's a lapsed Jew who has made calorie restriction her religion. By day, she maintains an illusion of existential control through obsessive food rituals while working as an underling at a Los Angeles talent management agency. At night, she pedals nowhere on the elliptical machine. Rachel is content to carry on subsisting until her therapist encourages her to take a 90-day communication detox from her mother, who raised her in the tradition of calorie counting. Rachel soon meets Miriam, a zaftig young Orthodox Jewish woman who works at her favourite frozen yogurt shop and is intent upon feeding her. Rachel is suddenly and powerfully entranced by Miriam, by her Sundays and her body, her faith and her family, and as the two grow closer, Rachel embarks on a journey marked by mirrors, mysticism, mother's milk and honey. Mm-hmm. So, Sophie, what are your overall thoughts? Well, uh, so I chose this book and... I am glad that I have read it. It's definitely a bit different to the kind of novels that I normally do reach for, but I feel like that's what reading is all about and that's what this podcast is all about, isn't it, is is mm. reading new things and, and thinking about things differently. And I guess that's a little bit about what bibliotherapy is, Jermaine, is like reading something to put yourself in somebody's shoes who's living a life that's very different to your own, for, you know, that idea of empathy and seeing the world through other people's eyes. Mm. So I, I really appreciated that um, Rachel's life is very different to mine, but we also share a lot of commonalities, like a lot of women, you know, body image mm. and that whole thing is something we all kind of live with in different ways throughout times of our life. So I'm glad I read it. I'm not sure. We did it for our book club, actually, which I suggested. I, I finally managed to dovetail um, the book that we've done in the podcast <laughs> and the book in my book, book club. So I suggested it to everybody and it was sort of came to mixed responses. But we had a really interesting conversation out of this book and I guess that's what oh. I think is great about reading things that are not always in your wheelhouse. What about you? Yeah, I think um... – well, that's ideally what you want in a book club book, isn't it? Is interesting yeah. conversations and different Definitely. thoughts. Are you going to 
share with us some of those different thoughts or yeah well I guess once we chat through for sure and one other thing actually because our book club did do um my year of rest and relaxation last year which is a book Uh, we really liked and this has been compared to it or you know there's been some similarities drawn which was one of the reasons why I thought might be a good one and I can kind of see that it's definitely about that kind of woman in her 20s struggling through lots of different things whereas in rest and relaxation it's all about this sort of obsession with sleep and in this book it's all this obsession with food specifically sweet things so yeah I think if you really enjoyed my year of rest and relaxation you you probably will quite like this book but they are different I mean I totally agree with what you said about bibliotherapy and reading books that take you out of your worldview and put you in someone else's and put you in the mind of people that you would never perhaps meet in real life and I think that's actually the aspect I enjoyed the most about this book what I found really interesting was being taken into the Jewish world, but even more nuanced than that, the different types of Jewish worlds, the Orthodox Jewish family versus mm. the more culturally Jewish family. And so I I enjoyed that the most, but overall I found it really sad. I felt it was a book that was about starvation in every aspect, not just mm. food starvation, but starvation in love and starvation um in all actually a very primitive starvation about of maternal love and i kept thinking about i don't know if you ever read when you were little or read to your children that book are you my mother yeah the little, the, a little duckling little, or what was it? it was a duckling or a chicken i think it was a duckling i think you're right searching yes. for her mother are you my mother and i just found it really poignant and really sad and I felt sort of psychological I mean it could be read on many levels and I couldn't help but read it perhaps too psychologically and maybe that's also what made me feel very sad about it that was um that Rachel was searching Mm. for something Mm. for herself but I found it really sad as well actually and you know so many of the reviews that I read about this book referred to it being funny like hilarious a darkly comic romp on the cover the Sunday Mm -hmm. Telegraph says it was weird funny and filthy Mm -hmm. I didn't get the funny part as much either I I found it really really sad too I found it so sad Mm -hmm. that this woman was depriving herself of of pleasure that she had never known what unconditional love felt like um mm-hmm. and and I, and Miriam as well her love interest I felt really sad for her because of her faith and her family and herself she yeah. never really felt like she could explore her sexuality yeah freely and I thought that was really sad but and and like you said earlier it's it's this idea of starvation and and Rachel has such a difficult relationship with her body. She's estranged from it. You know, she, it's all about depriving herself. It's like everything she thinks about and does from the minute she wakes up is about thinness and calorie counting. And, mm. you know, and it comes from her mom. I mean, her, her mother, it was dreadful the way she, you know, she went to her mom when she was a teenager and said, Mom, I think I might have an eating disorder. And she said, No, 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 you're, you're not skinny enough to have an eating disorder. <laughs> um, you know, just, horrendous um I felt so sad for Mm -hmm. her you know you just I just wanted to love her you know just sort of and it made me realize how as mothers of daughters our unconditional love is just 
the best thing we can give to mm-hmm. all sons, anyone, anyone. Yeah, so I thought that was really sad and I thought this idea of depriving yourself pleasure from food unless it's this crazy binge which I found I found them quite hard to read as well and then Mm. she falls in love or in lust with Miriam who is not a thin woman and she's all curves and Mm. softness and I thought it was so interesting that she fell in love with someone who was so different to the body that she was looking for herself and the way Miriam yeah. ate and the way she ordered. Actually, my favourite chapter in the book was, um, or favourite piece, was when they had that first dinner together at that kosher Hawaiian. The Chinese. Chinese restaurant. And the way Miriam, the way that the author Melissa Broder writes about food in that pa- passage I think is really amazing. I just incredibly, like a little, reminded me of some of the passages in um, Crying in H Mart where she described the eating and the creating the perfect mouthful. I loved that. But, yeah, I just thought it was fascinating that Miriam was the woman that Rachel became infatuated with when her body was so different yeah. to what she was striving for. And why is that, therapist, please? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wondered if she fell in love with um, Miriam's appetite and envied her ability to nourish herself, actually. I think I think Miriam is drawn as a particularly maternal body, you know, being mm breast like the way she describes the heaviness of the breast just reminds me of you know mother's milk and um curves and folds I mean she's the epitome of what a feeding mother would be of a newborn in Mm. a way and so that's sort of how I read Miriam and this this intertwining of maternal love with food and its connection with it like might be the first time Miriam makes her an ice cream sundae it's written There was an innocence about it, a childlike quality. It was a treat that a child would receive from a caring older person who wanted to reward them just for existing. And I felt really Mm. moved by that because I had this really strong sense that Rachel never felt rewarded for just existing. And, you know, when you talk about unconditional love, I mean, that's that's actually what it is, isn't it? You exist and therefore you're loved. Yeah. And, um, And the importance of that maternal love that she's completely missed. So... Yeah, I I agree with you. Is it love or lust is Miriam? Because I I think Miriam sort of stands in for some kind of maternal figure that's Mm. all-encompassing in love. I did find it a little bit jarring that this one encounter, you know, their brief relationship seemed to somehow cure Rachel of um, years and years and years of I'm not an expert on this, but it sounds like disordered eating, uh, almost overnight. Like, is that a bit unrealistic? Like the the time period mm-hmm. of this relationship seems like it was just weeks, if not potentially a couple mm-hmm. of months. And, you know, it it doesn't happen that quickly, I don't think, with women and their bodies and their approach to eating to just suddenly flip a switch and mm-hmm. and stop that mad restriction and then go you know eating and then jumping straight onto the elliptical machine to work off those calories that just seemed to stop straight away and I guess we don't know if she goes back to that um but maybe yeah I guess Miriam just she definitely did unlock something in Rachel didn't she and maybe that's the point of her yeah maybe it's the beginning of Rachel starting to because I think this is a story about learning how to love and accept yourself I mean mm. we'll get to that later that's the the point isn't it that she sort of comes to towards the end of understanding that but that's a lifelong process really I mean I think Miriam is also a way for Rachel to start unraveling that relationship with food like I have to say I've never found food more unappetizing in a book as I did in this book 
we'll mm-hmm. talk more about the food later. But I really, what I really appreciated about food was used as this vehicle to kind of understand her emotional world or her inner world, and uh, she sort of starts to understand her feelings through food. I thought this was quite nicely done. I decided that love is when you have food in your mouth that you know is not going to make you fat. Lust is when you have food in your mouth that is going to make you fat. Fear is the day after you had food in your mouth that is going to make you fat. Fear is when you eat your allotted calories for a given time and you find yourself still hungry. Mm. I think that just says everything about in a disordered eating and about how deeply entwined it is in our core emotional world. And as you quite rightly say, it doesn't easily get switched by someone saying the right thing or a therapist giving you a exercise program, you know, like a detox program from your mother or whatever. But I thought it, it shed a light into what living with those disordered eating patterns or living with an eating disorder may feel like on an emotional mm. level. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I found the first few chapters really hard going actually where she sort of sets the scene of her how she deprives herself and how she counts every last mouthful. I just found that so, so sad because, mm. you know, food can yeah. bring us pleasure. It's, it's life is, if nothing else, life is about, is pleasure, isn't it? You know, giving yourself, allowing mm. yourself that and makes me sad that so many young women in particular just don't deprive themselves of that completely and just don't mm. see food as something that they can just sit and savour and get pleasure from without the guilt. So, but I think we also need to talk about the sex because <laughs> there's a lot of it in this book. Yes, speaking of pleasure. <laughs> speaking of pleasure. Yes, there is a lot of sex in this book. Um, it's definitely quite spicy. Some of Rachel's sexual fantasies, fantasies are pretty full on and all, the author Melissa Broder has said, about this book she writes about what turns her on and that's eating and sex and that's great it's her Mm. book to do with what she wants with I just didn't find them super interesting or sexy and there was a lot of like dream sequence sexual fantasies Mm. and I found it hard Mm. to kind of get excited about that because I think I always think we had a rule in my house when mum was young when we were young that nobody could talk about their dreams till after breakfast and I think the point of that was and not their erotic dreams well no not that but just dreams in general because like they're never actually that interesting to other people are they hearing about other people's dreams I think mum hoped that like we would have forgotten them by after breakfast and (laughs) move on so it does make me think about that because I still like I have this inability to get excited about even my kids are like oh I had this dream last night I'm like yep tell me tell me after breakfast you know which I sound makes me sound terrible but I do love them unconditionally. But, yeah, I just thought that was quite interesting and I found them a little bit repetitive. I was much more interested in the relationship mm. interactions, you know, between her and Miriam and her and Anna who will come to and her and her mum. But what did you think about yeah. that part of the book? I think it's really interesting that you said you found it uninteresting and repetitive because I actually think they were very hollow. I think that's the point, isn't it? Yeah. That this starvation, this gluttony, this trying to fill up actually was very empty. Because it didn't quite hit the spot, yeah, as it were, emotionally. Again, I just and again, I'm reading it probably on this other level that I might be reading into it. But I kind of felt that Miriam symbolised what Rachel lacked and needed, you know, like in her voluptuousness, in her appetites, and then did sex kind of stand in for this way of trying to possess that, um, mm. to try and get some of that from her and I also think it's not surprising that Melissa 
find sex and eating them two most interesting things because these are our instinctual drives, aren't they? This is actually mm. what keeps us alive and keeps us going. You know, all the bodily functions are those basic instincts. And when I think of this book as a bit about being this starvation of instincts, I also found the sex scenes very hungry and never quite satisfying or fulfilling Rachel's appetite. And I think also it left me a bit sad um, because, again, it went back to her emptiness, like this quote, all this eating seemed to have made me sexually charged, awake. But what was waking up exactly? My pussy or my soul? I was scared of my soul. What if my soul was monstrous? Hmm. And I, again, back to this lack of maternal love and the deep wounding it causes, leaving someone feeling they're so unlovable and their soul's monstrous. So no matter how much pleasure you get from eating or from orgasm, you're left with this empty feeling of being monstrous. And I, um, uh, and so again, I didn't find those scenes as erotic as I may have found them in a different context because I think they sort of spoke very much to this feeling of um, emptiness and, and hollowness and that was my thought. Well, I think your thought's much more insightful than mine actually and I, I appreciate it because I think you're so right. Maybe it wasn't repetitive, it was a bit hollow and a bit just essentially unsatisfying because it could never be because mm. she was never going to allow herself perhaps to feel sated, mm. you know, or feel completely loved in mm. that moment. Again, just sad. <laughs> so sad. Um, yes, I know. I think we're selling this book very well to our no. listeners. But, um, <laughs> it was compulsively it readable. It's fascinating to have this conversation. Yeah. It is oh, yeah, and beautifully written, really well written. Yeah, so, and it is so, I think, um, like, it is punchy, and that's what we said in our book club. Like, it mm. was an eye-opener, it was really interesting, and I'm really glad I read it, and I felt, you know, parts of it were a bit voyeuristic, you know, some of those scenes, I was like, oh, this is a private moment between mm. these two people, but, yeah. Or a I private think, moment um, in her own head. Sorry. Oh, yeah, that's true, actually. Sorry. In her own head, in her own head. Yeah, the fantasies, the dreams. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to add on that before we move on from the from the sex? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, I think again that, that she cleverly writes about sex and food and um, emotions all intertwined. Like um, this is yes, but she. I've got another quote here about Rachel beginning to understand what love is through food. Like when she says to Miriam, "I love, I like the way you feed yourself." I mean, there's something quite erotic about that too, isn't there? Then uh, this idea about instincts, you know, when she says she took a bite of the Sunday, and my mouth knew what to do, that just says everything about how far away from herself she is. Um, mm. That lack of being able to trust, as you said earlier on, you talked about it, she's so estranged from her body, and that shock she has of um, not trying to control. And oh my goodness, my mouth just knows what to do. And I think that quite a metaphor for sex as well, isn't it? That mm. letting go of yourself and your body instinctively knows what to do. And um, so, yes, again, I'm back to this really strong feeling of this book being about instinctual, dep the deprivation of, of these primal instincts. Yeah, and this, I just want to read this, this passage actually, which I think illustrates that quite well. This is Miriam eating from the scorpion bowl at that restaurant, which does sound fascinating mm -hmm. to me. 
She cut carefully into a piece of chicken with the side of her chopstick, elegantly and with slow precision, as though nothing had to be inhaled urgently. There was plenty and there would be plenty. She surveyed her plate, strategizing, map-making. This was how it was going to happen. Then this, then this. She took one noodle and draped it around the chicken, then put a piece of egg from the fried rice on top. She dunked it all in some of the spare chicken sauce and sesame seeds on the side of her plate. Then she raised it to her lips, closed her eyes and opened them again and bit in. I watched her chewing thoughtfully. And I liked so much of this book is mm. is about feeling bad about food and feeling um, the guilt about it, whereas Miriam is just so gleeful about how she eats. And she, I do that too mm. with like a plate of food. I think about it like I, map making. I like that idea of, okay, how am I going to attack this beautiful <laughs> meal and how am I going to make it last and how am I going to get every last ounce of pleasure I can get out of this food and um so I know that some of the food scenes in this book are really not appetising, but I found that one, I just really liked the way it was written. I thought she's she's a very good food writer when she wants to be. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree, actually, and that sort of reminds me like what you said earlier about crying in H Mart, those beautiful mm. scenes of where food is centre stage and it says everything about thoughtful pleasure, like as yeah. you're thinking, the mapping it out, the thinking about it. Yeah. Mm. And I just, it's not easy to do, I think, to write about food like that, that that mm. can really evoke a flavour and a feeling of sitting at that table in front of this delicious meal. So I really appreciated those bits. They were my favourite in the book. Should we chat about Melissa Broder before we move on? I, I'm fascinated by this yeah. woman. So I, I didn't yeah. realise this until I started looking into the book for our discussion today but she um was the woman behind the cult twitter account of the sort of noughties called at so sad today had you ever come across this before Jermaine? no no not until i did a quick look into her too yeah so i used to follow this account back when i was on twitter which i haven't been on for, for quite some years but so sad today was anonymous nobody ever knew who wrote this account and it was had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of followers a lot of very famous people would retweet and there were just sort of little insights about you know depression or anxiety or just kind of funny little quips about the modern world we live in um with a sort of dark kind of undertone at times anyway she kept her identity secret until uh, 2015 when she outed herself in Rolling Stone magazine which is pretty rock star and she's just (laughs) fascinating to me and so then she wrote a book called So Sad Today and then another one called Pisces and she's just so vulnerable and she is, exposes herself in social media in her books, completely walks, warts and all, you know, that idea of she said in an interview with the LA Times, my oldest relationship is my fraught relationship with food and my body. And she's so open about them with no filter. She says, oh, the Times article says, um, Broda comes by her provocations honestly. They are born of her compulsion to reveal the strangest or darkest or ugliest parts of herself before someone else can expose her. And it reminded me a little bit of that Nora Ephron quote, quote we talked about in episode one mm. when we talked about heartburn, how she famously said that she she could control her stories by telling them and owning them before anybody else could. And I wonder, you know, it goes mm. back to what you said earlier about Rachel feeling monstrous um, and this idea of learning to love yourself maybe and maybe for Melissa Broder it's by putting herself mm. out there so freely and openly I found that fascinating because I struggle with that on social media. You know, I'm quite active on Instagram and, and I share, you know, things I'm cooking and, and the, our life here, but I don't think I'm strong enough or able to be that vulnerable. I see other people on Instagram sharing 
lots of things and um, I'm in awe of them but I um, I think I'm maybe just too sensitive to to be that vulnerable. <laughs> Do you think is it, is it honesty and bravery? I'm not quite sure showing up and being mm. that vulnerable. Um, it's it's just inter- it's fascinating to me. I'd love to hear what you think it about is. that. I do think it's really interesting and I think it's a really complex question though, isn't it? I find it interesting mm. that talk about it being bravery or like is that what you think that that's sort of the, the pinnacle uh, of? Not necessarily. I think sometimes it is brave to be vulnerable and put yourself out there but mm. it's not always bravery, is it? I think it's maybe it's just the need to share or to to feel heard or seen maybe. Yeah. Like I think it goes back to actually what's the intention doesn't it? Mm. Like what, what are you needing to do it for? As you say, like Nora Efron said, is there a sense of controlling the story? So there's still a curation around your vulnerability, isn't there? Because it's, oh, it definitely. can't ever be the whole picture. You can never show up completely, even to yourself. I mean, even on the analyst couch, there's a lot that's hidden and unknown. And I remember years ago seeing this fantastic Italian movie called Perfect Strangers. I don't know if um, no, you've seen that. I just looked up before. It's It was being streamed on SBS and oh, somewhere else, but currently it's only for rent on YouTube or Apple. But it's this brilliant movie about I think there's six friends and a, there are a couple of couples and two single friends, but friends for, you know, they're middle-aged people, friends for since university days they have a dinner party and the whole point of the movie is exploring this idea of there being three lives you've got a public life a private life and a secret life these couples all believe that they've got nothing to hide that their private lives are completely out there with their friends and their partners at this dinner and someone makes up this rule that okay tonight for dinner we all put our phones in the middle of the table any text message that comes in or any phone call that comes in we all get to listen to or read Mm. and everyone's like yeah I've got nothing to hide that's fine and of course there's (laughs) a lot to hide and you know even from themselves and um when I saw this movie um Stuart and I saw it with two other couple friends and we went for dinner afterwards and it was this fascinating conversation about actually how much do you really expose of yourself and we were with close friends as well but so I'm just thinking about those different stages we sit on, like the stage of the internet and how much you share. Is that really showing up in the way it is to your close friends or your acquaintances or your partner or mm. ultimately yourself? And so, yeah, I've got a lot of questions. I don't have any answers, mm-hmm. um, but I have a lot of questions around sharing vulnerability and what that really means and what that looks like because it's going to be different for everyone and everyone's going to have different opinions and views on it. But of course, um, but that yeah, that maybe was a really great doorway into thinking about this kind of yeah. idea of how much is private and how much is secret and how do you separate them. I love that idea of the three mm. lives. The only rule of thumb I have, I guess, with with what to share online, and someone told me once, and I stick to it, is only share things online that you're comfortable getting feedback on. And I think that's a really good rule of thumb. For me, I'm comfortable getting Mm -hmm. feedback on a cake recipe or um, a book (laughs) that I've talked about. But, you know, my relationships or my parenting, all that kind of stuff, I prefer to get feedback from the people in my life who, you know, I know. 
my friends are directly like, impacted by your parenting or your yeah. relationships. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh no, I just find it so fascinating this world we live in and how some mm. people just show up so entirely. Well, maybe not all entirely, as you say, there's the private life. How we share and what we share and why we share it. It's just eternally fascinating to me. And that's why Melissa Broder as a character, as an author, as a person, mm. um, I think she's such a talented person and I'm yeah, in awe of the way she is so um, out there sharing every element of her life. And I think there's a, because when I was thinking about this question, I was thinking about how I am always drawn to memoir, a particularly literary memoir where, um, as in, where it's not like an autobiography, but it's more about an emotional journey of something that that person has been through. So like I think Danny Shapiro, who wrote Devotion, which is all about kind of like an ex- existential midlife crisis in her 40s, and her belief system and, and her uh, having that that shock of when you have to live with uncertainty and you don't mm. know what's going to happen and how do you still live and hold on to that. And she wrote one called Hourglass, which is all about her long-term marriage. A lot of showing up of her inner workings and, and vulnerabilities. And, and then I, I don't know if people might have heard of Inheritance, where she mm. discovered that through a simple DNA test that her father wasn't her biological father. And then she's talked a lot about how she's realised this body of memoir writing has been this unconscious search for knowing that something wasn't right or there was some secret or there was some something that was missing that she couldn't put a finger on and, and now she can trace back through her memoirs all this kind of not really knowing how she was looking for this answer mm. and how writing is a way of trying to understand ourselves. There's something I really appreciate in that kind of openness and vulnerability. Again, as she would say, it's still curated. It's still I'm choosing what I'm going to talk about or put out there. But also she doesn't know what she's put out there until she's reflected back and gone, oh, this this exposes more of me than I realised and Mm. I actually think books, reading does the same thing. So, you know, even when Sonia and I wrote Reading the Seasons, which is just us writing out the books we loved, it doesn't feel exposing but when I think about it, actually it is very exposing because talking about what has affected you in a book Mm. actually says a lot more about you than you've put into words and so, yeah, so I find that kind of vulnerability or exploration very thought-provoking in a way I don't know I think it's different in the showing up on the internet in short well maybe not I'm not sure again this is such a complex idea isn't it is there more thinking when you put a book together than there is when you just show up to Instagram every day I'm not sure think so made me think a bit actually about um Ella Risbridger and we had a similar conversation mm. when we talked about year of miracles and that idea of when you're writing non-fiction like she was saying that she writing her recipe book she gave away so much more of herself than she realized when she went back yes, and re- reread right. it you know mm. we do we do kind of drop clues to ourselves without knowing all the time in however way we show up I yeah. guess like if you um, went back and traced your book evolution of your recipe books, mm-hmm. I wonder what you would find that was really preoccupying you at that time or what, you know, the, the, the mm. big things are happening in life that kind of 
found their way into the recipes you chose or the the theme of the book or I mean there'd Mm. be a lot there Definitely. Oh, well, for me, food is always a way to comfort and nourish myself and the people I love, you know. So, mm. and even, you know, scrolling back through your Instagram account would all be the same way. Or just whatever you've cooked that week mm. will probably be a bit of a map to where you were in your head. Or like yesterday, you know, had a really busy week, I had a lot on, and I just made, had to make hot cross buns. Like I was just, I just need to get my hands into some dough. I want to fill my house with the smell of these buns. It was not at all necessary. It wasn't for any client. It wasn't for a book. It was just the pleasure of making these buns. So, yeah, I guess that we're constantly dropping clues about ourselves, aren't we? But I guess people like Melissa Broda do it intentionally. There, yes. No, yeah, okay, um, yes. That, that's mm. a really interesting difference, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, actually, on this mm. idea, I'm so interested to hear your thoughts. Actually, potentially the the only funny bit in this book for me was the therapist <laughs> and that, that line of how she goes to this therapist because the only one she can afford I think it's on her insurance or something uh, who occasionally gives that insight adjacent advice I really <laughs> liked that line <laughs> I'd like to say for the record your too. advice is always a lot more than insight adjacent it's it's on the money always <laughs> what did you think about the sections in the book where she's with her therapist I am. Um, I actually, I like that part too. That her therapist, she lost respect for her therapist because she'd accept her insurance as well. Yeah, said, exactly. What did that say about the therapist quality? Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Look, the therapist wasn't my favorite character. No, I kind of felt. I mean, there are very different styles of therapy. Sure. Um, that's the way. Yeah, she practices is certainly not how I practice because I found there was very little about the relationship between the two. Well, there's a lot of Rachel's kind of negative feelings towards her, but it was never explored in the therapy. And for me, that's actually where change happens in the therapeutic relationship when those things do kind of get talked about and explored. But I think in the book, the therapist is really there as a plot device, wasn't she? Because Mm. she gave a reason for Rachel to have to break contact with her mother and then have to deal with herself. I kind of um, found her more as a plot point than a fully um, realised character. Yeah, true, true, true. Yeah, I think that that was the only thing. Sorry, maybe that's why we both found it funny, though, because it was kind of a break from this a a lot of pain and internal wonderings and a bit Mm. lighter and more cartoonish or something. Yeah, poten- yes, potentially, yeah, and d- because everything up until that point had been so bleak, hadn't it? And then you've got this sort of moment of comical. The therapist in her clogs. Yes. <laughs> okay, so we're coming to the end of our chat about the book, but I, you know, back to the food, I think this idea of, of taking pleasure in food and the only time she does that is when she's with Miriam. I mean, even that the dinner that she has with Miriam's family and just sitting there watching this whole mm. family breaking bread or colour. That Friday yeah. night dinner that she has with Miriam's family where they're all just sitting there enjoying this beautiful home-cooked meal and there's no, she's not being judged for what she's eating. And I, I liked those moments and I thought, well, maybe this is a potential healing moment for her. But so much of the food yeah. scenes in this book are not appetising, you're right. I mean, those scenes where she has those binges, it was just really tough going, wasn't it? Mm. Really hard. I agree with that Friday night dinner, the family dinner. I, I 
And again, this is the, I love the way she uses food to describe her emotions. Um, I smelled something roasting, some kind of meat, and immediately thought, turn around, run. The intimacy of it, the smell of another family life was terrifying. Mm. I thought that was really um, moving. Yeah. And oh. the search for this mother, so even Miriam's mother, you know, she when she actually enjoyed the food and took second helpings and Miriam's mother sell, tells her, such a good eater you are. I mean, it's just so early childhood, isn't it? Like, yeah. Um, being fed by your mother and being praised by your mother and being given permission to have a appetite. I, I suddenly realised I say that was like a really great scene about food, but again I'm left with this feeling of pain and sadness. So there you go. Yeah, it just comes back so often in our conversations, doesn't it, this women and appetites and allowing ourselves to have an appetite without guilt or shame or, yeah, it's just a, such a ongoing conversation, isn't it? It does seem to pop up in all the very many different kind of books that we read that there's a sort of a theme of this mm. idea of being at peace with your appetites, I guess, or, or trying to find that, which is, you know, not, not easy for women or well, many women, every woman. You, you know, when Miriam makes it that first special yogurt Sunday, and, and, you know, this idea of being fed and cared for by, by Miriam, you know, who she goes to this frozen yogurt shop and it's like perfectly scooped and leveled off and she knows exactly how many calories yeah. are in each cup and she sort of goes around the back and eats it without being watched. And then Miriam makes it this, this special Sunday and she says, the taste was orchestral, the whipped cream and strawberries with their own heaven, a strawberry shortcake of pleasure. And perhaps that's mm. what makes her fall in love with Miriam is that she's being cared for and, and this woman just clearly gets so much joy out of seeing Rachel eating. Yeah, I thought that was quite yeah. fascinating. So, Jermaine, any other thoughts about like the role of food in this book or appetites? Anything else before we move on? I did like, uh, like you just said, that I, the, the uh, quote about food being orchestral, so many different flavours in one. And I guess I sort of saw that as a bit of the start of some kind of integration of all these different appetites and the beginning of being able to trust uh, the instincts of her body. Like mm. I said earlier about that one about her mouth knowing what to do, there's another quote, it felt like a miracle to be able to eat what I desired, not more or less than that. It was shocking as though my body knew what, it, what to do and what not to do if only I let it. I, I think that is actually a really, really powerful line. And, you know, isn't that what we are all searching for, essentially? Is Like, I can't speak to anyone else, but I've spent a lot of my life feeling weird about food. I'm sure a lot of us have. And only really now in my, like, late 40s am I kind of coming to terms with this idea of, you know, your body knows what it wants. It what knows what it wants to eat, when it wants to eat it, you know, eat what feels good, you know, mm. that idea of instinct instinctive eating I don't know I just think it's it's a really that's a really powerful line and that's what we're all really searching for isn't it this idea of hmm. just trusting our body and that idea of feeling like a miracle to eat what you desired not more or less like actually really tapping into what you really want not just eating that chocolate bar just to shove it in because you're feeling like crap or whatever it might be slowing down and trusting your body so I, I hope that that Rachel keeps that kind of instinct and that trust going because it's a powerful thing and I think that's um that sort of shows like what you just said at the very beginning of this episode which was that 
there are some commonalities in this book, even though it's such a different life and different experiences. That's the link, isn't it? Mm -hmm. That if we all need to learn how, if we just let our bodies know what they need, trust that our bodies know what they need or what Mm. they want to do, we might actually feel much happier and healthier. Mm. Yes, it's a lot easier said than done though, right? Like there's a lot to untangle and yeah. unpack to get to that point. And, um, but, yeah, I guess that's the, uh, for me at least, that's the, the goal <laughs> in terms of just mm. trusting your body. But anyway, okay, I think the only other thing I really wanted to mention was I found the mysticism element in this book quite um, challenging for me. I, I don't know a lot of mm. kind of, it, and I think a lot of it is rooted in Judaism and, kind yeah. of that old religion and it's not something that I know a lot about but the whole idea of Gollum and her mystic dreams I mm, yeah I struggled a bit with that stuff um I have to say I found myself skimming through a couple of those pages um did you enjoy that part of it no I I mean I again I sort of felt a bit like I don't have enough of a baseline of understanding about that mysticism but I also think it kind of just showed again that this book was so much about Rachel's in her world and her journey rather than it being a love story or a thing about other characters. I think it was really mm. about us going deep, deep diving into her psyche. Yep. All right. Well, before we move on to the letter, I would I would like to know, would you recommend this book to, to women in your lives? Like did, did you find it a book that you would pass on happily? <laughs> That's a really good question actually. <laughs> It, as you say, it was, I mean, she's a fantastic writer. It's very sharp. It's very page turning. It's very different style. Like I probably, I probably would to friends. I don't know that if I was doing it as a bibliotherapy book, that could be a lot more complicated. Mm. I'm not sure. I'm not, cause I, cause I'm, I guess cause I'm left with an overall feeling of sadness at the end of it. So yeah, we're really selling it, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> which is not our job to do so there well, we go we're being completely impartial <laughs> that's right we're having an honest I mean look look how much conversation it's evoked as you said in your book club I mean this is why these books are great yes yeah. it it's a good book club it's book. not about it really is a good book club book I think yeah mm. and it's quite short too yeah you know, no it's I not, agree it doesn't take forever to read it's it's you know she's got that snappy kind of you can see she cut her writing teeth in twitter twitter land it can be yeah, very it's bounce along quite snappily yeah. I think at least the first half did yeah. me. Mm. no no I agree I agree with you there yeah shall we shift gears into our letter for today what do you think yep well I might read it out yes. and then you can start with your prescription I love this letter. It's short and sharp and it's full of ideas that I want to adopt with my life. Okay. Dear Sophie and Jermaine, thank you so much for sharing your podcast. I find it to be warm, wise and comforting. Thank you. Like many parents with young kids, date nights with my husband are few and far between at the moment. Most evenings we find ourselves collapsed on a couch watching or reading different things. In an attempt to spend a bit more quality time together, we've decided to try and spend our Saturday nights doing a puzzle together while listening to an audiobook once the kids are in bed. Full disclaimer, this is an idea that Nick Offerman recommended in a recent On Being podcast episode. 
I'm wondering if you could prescribe a book that might might spark some interesting conversation and a cocktail recipe to help us kick off our inaugural puzzle night. Many thanks. Ah, oh, how good's this? What a great idea! I know it's fantastic, and um, it's such a yeah, it's such a simple night. But actually, a simple book could become very deep idea, couldn't it? Because as we've just been talking about how books can kind of ignite these very profound conversations um, mm. that what better way to do that than with your partner. So in keeping with that idea, I'm going to prescribe the novel Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff. Have you read that? No, I haven't. It was published in to. 2015 and actually was a favourite of Barack Obama's. I mean, not that I, I think oh, I read it. It's good enough for Barack, it's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason I've chosen it is it's a so it's a story about a 25-year marriage between Lotto and Mathilde and it deeply dissects their relationship and it's it's got everything it's witty and insightful but it can also feel quite menacing and cold so it's a very real life I think mm. both Lotto and Mathilde have struggled with you know complex childhoods and family dynamics that impact the relationship and I think it's a great book to listen to together because a bit like that movie I talked about can you ever really truly know one another and it's a book that when you finish you really want to kind of dissect it with someone its style is slightly different in the first half of the book is told from Lotto's perspective on this 25-year marriage Mm -hmm. and then the second half is told completely from Matilde's perspective and that shakes everything up so, yes, it's, it's it's just one of those books you really need to talk to someone about afterwards. And, in fact, it's a book that Sonia and I wrote about in our book, Reading the Seasons. And I thought I'd just quickly quote the couple of things she and I said about it in our book because I think this is kind of what our letter writer is looking for is this idea that books that provoke conversation that make you really have to think about yourself and not the role that you play. So you're still your own person I think that's really important when you have really young children and you're trying to reconnect with your partner that um, you reconnect with yourself and and you lose those two roles and Mm. then you kind of come back together in a different way. So Sonia had read it before me actually and so she wrote to me, I love books of the dual narrative but this one goes one step ahead in that it isn't a story narrated from both sides but rather as if there are two disparate stories being told, like reading two novels. I was struck by a passage where the drama teacher answers the question he poses himself of the difference between tragedy and comedy. There is no difference. It's a question of perspective. It simply depends on how you frame what you're seeing. And although it's a depiction of a long-term marriage of which I have no experience, it made me think of situations where this has happened in my own life. And then my answer to Sonia was, what has stayed with me is the question, over the course of their 25-year marriage, do they ever truly know one another? How much can we hide from facing ourselves when in a marriage? Yet despite this blindness to themselves, they're still able to profoundly love one another. Mm. Both of us reading the same book, both of us being taken somewhere completely different Mm. depending on where we're both at in our own lives. And I hope our letter writer has a similar enlivening experience of finding more books like this that make her and her husband curious to know more about each other's mind. And, of course, that should be aided with the help of a cocktail. So I'm looking forward to hearing <laughs> which one you're prescribing. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I don't want to step on your toes at all here, but I just literally finished listening to an audiobook 
this morning on the way home from town that I wanted to share as well because I feel like it's another book mm. with a dual narrative, a husband and wife narrative. It's called Geneva and it's written by Richard Armitage who's an English actor. He was in the Hobbit movies. It's one of those oh, actors that, like you'd yeah. know his face once you saw him. And so he wrote it and he also narrates the, the husband's, um, Daniel's story. And Sarah, the, the wife's story is um, narrated by Nicola Walker who I love. She was in The Split. Oh that English actress, and I could listen to her, read her shopping list, like her voice, I just love her. And it's only, it's quite short, I'm just looking at my, it's about uh, 11, 12 hours, but it's really like fast-paced and it's really well done and it's a bit of a thriller, like a psychological thriller, and they go to Geneva and she's suffering from early Alzheimer's and they're trying to find a cure. And Anyway, it's really fascinating and just well done like it's a really kind of it's like a movie for your ears you know one of those sorts of audiobooks so right um, you know that's I just finished reading it and um well, listening to it rather and it made me think as I was listening to our as I was thinking about a letter writer it might be a good one because I, I know mm. that my husband Tim will really enjoy this one too anyway the cocktail recipe so I love oh, this great. No idea and yeah, it's good. It's it's only on Audible though. I keep kind of going to stop my Audible membership because I feel like it's too expensive and then that, I find another one I, I want to listen to and then I kind of mm. stay around. But anyway, I just have to say I love this idea <laughs> of a Saturday night over a puzzle so you're not just slumped in front of the television watching something. You're mm. actually interacting with the puzzle. You're listening, you're talking. I think it's a really great idea. So thank you so much to our letter writer for bringing it. I hadn't heard that podcast episode so I didn't know about it I'm gonna try and and do it and I was even thinking the school holidays coming up you know with my daughter's coming home from boarding school I'm so excited you know that idea of maybe it's something you know that as a family you could do together rather than just all being on different devices Mm. or just watching a movie like to put a puzzle in the middle of the table and just allocate amount of time to just sit and talk and listen and Anyway, I think it's a beautiful idea. So for my cocktail, which obviously I would not give my children, I think it's got to be a really good (laughs) homemade margarita. I think there is, I never usually, except for this one place called the White Spider, which I love, in the snow, I never really order margaritas out because I feel like they use that pre-mixed like lime juice that's just lost all its right tang and boom so like a good homemade margarita with lots of freshly squeezed lime juice you know heaps of flavor and then like a spicy lime chili salt around the rim of the glass would be a winner here I would make up a jug and I'd dilute it maybe so it doesn't completely knock you out and sip away as you puzzle and chat I think that would be beautiful and then I'll share the recipe I mean it's not much of a recipe but I'll share what I do for that salt as well because it makes it having that kick of chili every time you have a little sip it's beautiful um Mm. and I know we won't ask for anything to eat but I can't help myself I would just also put out for dinner a really simple plate I'd get a beautiful block of cheddar cheese a handful of toasted almonds some thinly sliced crisp new season apples and maybe some oat cakes or crackers Tim and I literally had this for for dinner the other Mm. night and it was so nice to just graze over such simple good fare and it's such a light dinner so you don't feel kind of heavy or bloated afterwards and you can just sort of make yourself that little perfect mouthful, the perfect bit of cheese and apple and oat cake and sip your margarita and do your puzzle. I think that sounds like a really nice night. So there we go. That's my suggestion. It does. I agree. <laughs> All right. Are you a margarita lover? Because we we've, we've, haven't quite landed on a cocktail that we both love except for gin and tonics yeah. really yet, have we? Is it's that gin and tonic, isn't it? That, yeah. I love that gin and tonic you made me 
when I came to you, was that with rhubarb infused or something? Oh, yeah. It was a rhubarb infused gin tonic Mm, with a bit of star anise. Yes, that's nice too. It's from a local distillery actually. different flavours help me. Oh, just a a Stone Pine Distillery in Bathurst. Little plug for them because they make beautiful gins and their rhubarb one is my favourite. Yeah, yeah, I I think a a really good margarita is something very special. That's my drink of choice. Yeah, and it makes me think of... Amor Tows, yes, and his margarita glass that has to be the small that martini um, that was martini, wasn't it? Smaller, oh, it says martini. Sorry, yeah, I've got the wrong. See, I'm so not cocktail <laughs> um, focused. Well, next time so you you're come, a margarita fan, I do love it. Next time you come, you'll have to stay the night because you probably remember to drive after it's very strong. <laughs> but <laughs> um, drive down your I'll country road. You, <laughs> I know, I know, you might disappear. I'll make you a good margarita and we'll have nuts and oat cakes and cheddar and apple and um, record something. Okay, but we will uh, wrap up now, I think. I just want to say, as always, the most enormous thank you to our subscribers. Our numbers are growing all the time and we're so grateful Mm. to our Substack paid subscribers because you allow us to keep doing this and covering our costs and we Mm. really, really appreciate your support. Thank you to our producer, Christy Reading, for putting it all together and stitching up all our ums and ahs and lags from the internet, et cetera. Any other Thank yous, Jermaine, or anything else you want to say before we tap out? No, I think, well, just as I always say, oh, we always need letters. So if you oh, feel like getting some free wine, you mm-hmm. can write us a letter and from Single Vineyard Sellers you'll get a case of their Highgate wine of your choosing. Yeah, the letters, it's fantastic getting the letters, isn't it? Because they're such a huge variety and they, yeah. um, as you say, we all we learn something from them all as well. So, yeah, keep them coming, please. Definitely, definitely. Well, thank you so much for listening. We we love knowing that you're there with us as we chat away and uh, we'll see you next time. What's our book for next one, actually? Oh, I think I've got it right here. Is it this one, My First Popsicle? Oh, great. You've got it already. Good. I know. It just yes. arrived. I ordered it from my local bookshop, Collins Orange. Thank you very much. Um, my First oh. Popsicle, it's an anthology of food and feelings edited by Zosia Mamet probably not pronounce that properly but I can't wait to read that oh and we are going to do a couple of mini episodes we've decided to do a little few mm. themed mini episodes once we can get into the same room and record so lots coming up as well great We're looking forward to it all right well thank you for listening and we will see you in a month's time see you then I ought to take up drinking Just to drown out all these memories Maybe I could down a whiskey bottle And head out on the highway Just to see if it'll bring some peace But I ain't a drinking girl I'm just a small town woman Trying to find my way in a lonesome world And I ain't a whiskey girl I'm just a small town woman Trying to walk a straight line in a crooked world
get to thinking about that man I wonder if he's headed south again Or maybe I'll follow where that booted baby led But I am a wandering girl I'm just a small town woman Trying to find my way in a lonesome world And I am a southbound girl Just a small town lady Trying to walk a straight line In a crooked